Well, welcome. Good to see all of you this morning. We're going to study God's Word together. Go ahead and open your Bible if you got one to Isaiah chapter 61. You can kind of flip open in the middle of your Bible. If you're hitting Psalms and Proverbs, hang a right. If you hit Jeremiah, Ezekiel, hang a left, and you'll find Isaiah right in there. Um, Guests who are with us, what a delight it is to have you uh, join us for worship today. We're honored that you'd spend some time this morning with us. We're, We're walking through a series called City on a Hill, and we're basically just asking the question, what does it look like to be people changed by Jesus and shining as lights in our community and in the world. And so we've looked at that under a number of different pursuits, things that we want to, as a local church, passionately aim at and intentionally go after together. And so we've looked at a number of things so far, and, and this, uh, this Sunday brings us to pursuing kindness. And I just want to say, I think that this message is central for the whole series, I think if we do everything else that we've talked about in this series and we'll talk about in this series and we, we're not marked by generosity and welcome and authenticity and joy, um, then it's just going to come off like we're doing a bunch of spiritual religious chores. This should be a mark of the church, that there is a kind of fragrance that everything that we touch feels like kindness was there feels like welcome and hospitality and authentic care and concern came because the church came and with them comes this this embodied kindness. You think about gospel kindness is a powerful thing in the world. You know, Paul said that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That is, we're holding on to something that's not God. We think it's really awesome, but it's, over time it's gonna actually just leave us empty and depleted. And it's God's kindness that says, hey, let go of that, come over here. And that's what enables us to let go of that thing and turn in God's direction. His kindness triggers that, makes that happen. And we're gonna study that together. I just wanna front load this by, by helping us think in an apostolic way, this is Paul's thinking, he connects kindness, God's kindness toward us, to the way that we relate to each other and the way that we relate to those outside the church. And so here's, here's Paul's way of saying it. So he's talking to a church leader named Titus, and he says to Titus, tell the congregation to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind always showing gentleness to all people, for we too were once foolish and disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice. There's the relational feel outside the kingdom of God. Envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior, there's the game changer, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So you just see those words up there for a second and think about the way that Paul describes the incarnation. The incarnation, according to Paul in this verse, is God's kindness made visible. It's God's kindness making landfall. That's what, when Jesus arrives, he says, kindness got here. God's kindness showed up. 
Here, here's the thing about Jared and Moana and, and this awesome family down here, because I've experienced their hospitality as well and deep friendship and conversations backstage and just opportunities to grow deeper in relationship. And here's the thing, here's the magic that happens around these guys, is there's no, they don't put up a front. There's no pretending. There's so much welcome that you find yourself not having to be pride open. You find yourself sharing everything. Like this is the worst of it. This is how bad it got. And usually they've beaten you to the punch because they've told you about the argument that they just got in and how he slept on the couch the night before. And so there's just this sense of there's safety here. You can share anything you're struggling with, anything that burdens you, and whatever, on the other side of that sentence, they won't have their mouths open like, what are you? How does that even happen? There's this sense of, well, of course, and that's where grace meets us. That's what happens around their table. And Isaiah 61, I think, wants to set us up for that kind of experience in the church. And it wants to set us up to bring that kind of experience into our community and into our World, because this is a picture of the heart of Jesus. This is 750 years before Jesus arrives and is born in Bethlehem, and the prophets are saying, when he gets here, this is what he's going to do. This is what Messiah is going to do. It's a prophecy. So follow along with me, and let's look at the heart of Jesus together. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, splendid clothes instead of despair, and they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities. What a wonderful group of verbs that is. Rebuild, restore, renew the devastations of many generations. Verse five, strangers will stand and feed your flocks and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. Here's a question for us to to think about. What What kind of church are we? Are we an Isaiah 61 kind of church? Are we a safe place for returning prodigals? People who have walked away from God. Are we a a safe place for people to come in to our community and come in with their doubts? Not having their doubts all sorted out in advance before they come here among us, but they, they come with their doubts and they find this to be a place where you can, you can process that and we're thinking together and we're patiently walking with each other and you can share the worst of it without thinking that somebody's going to heap shame on you, right? Or, or going to treat you like a second-class citizen. That should be the environment, that should be the ethos Uh, the temperature of life in the church. So you think about, this is the way of Jesus. This is what he brought into the world with him. The kindness of God arrived on the scene in Jesus. Well, you think, we haven't always seen kindness show up. 
So there are other people in the Bible. The Pharisees don't necessarily kind of give off kindness and welcome. It's not like you want to come and confess your your worst and darkest secrets in their presence because you know they're going to furrow their brows and say, you know, you need to figure out how to live like we live. Or even in the Old Testament, you get a prophet like, like the prophet Jonah. Jonah was a prophet who preached to people he didn't like. Right, he brought the message obligatory, right? He had to have, God had to take certain measures to make sure that happened. But he brought this, it was very obligatory, gives an altar call, kind of secretly praying, nobody responds in Nineveh. He doesn't want these people to know God. He's saying the right things, but he doesn't have the right heart. He's got the right message, but the wrong heart. Look, church, beautiful things can happen when these two things come together, when gospel truth and gospel community gospel culture, when all of those are firing together, powerful things happen. When we have a compelling message and we have a compelling community, and that compelling community is marked by authenticity and humility and love and care and hospitality and generosity, servant-hearted people. This text wants to wants to give us a new set of lenses to look out at our community. I think if Isaiah 61 works on our eyesight as a church, we'll see this community, this city through eyes of faith. And what what does that mean? It means that when we drive through town, we'll look around and everywhere you look, you'll think, Jesus wants those people. He wants that whole apartment complex. He wants this entire neighborhood. He wants everybody in that high rise. He, He wants this city. He opens his arms wide in mercy over this city and says, Come on in, I've got mercy, I've got a table and it's full, I've got grace for you, come and get it. Not only that, if Isaiah 61 adjusts our eyesight, we'll drive around this city and we'll see beneath the outward shell of Birmingham's affluence in certain parts or Birmingham's success and Birmingham's growth as a city and we'll see underneath the shell and what will we see underneath the shell? Captives, prisoners, addicts, people locked in cycles of despair, depressed, groaning, mournful, people slogging their way through life without purpose, without hope, without God in this world. That's why we need a text like Isaiah 61 to work on us in our heart, right? So that we can embody, genuinely embody the wide arm welcome of Jesus where we live, where we work, where we play. So Isaiah 61, I think it's a thrilling picture of gospel renewal and it unfolds in three stages. Number one, grace moves in. Grace moves in. So what did the gospel writer John say about Jesus coming? He said, the law came through Moses. Literally, the man carried a tablet down a mountain with the law on it. So the law arrived in Moses and he said, but grace, grace and truth came in Jesus. The new Moses brought grace with him and he says even grace upon grace, that is grace piled on top of grace came in Jesus. So you put these two things together, right? Paul, what the apostle Paul just said is is that uh, Jesus showing up here in Bethlehem beginning his ministry was the arrival of the kindness of God on earth. 
And John would just turn that ever so slightly and he would say, it's the arrival of grace. It's grace making landfall. It's grace. Jesus' arrival here was grace moving into the neighborhood to bring about change, right? So you come to Luke chapter four. I'm gonna put it up for you on the screen in just a moment. Luke chapter four records Jesus' very first sermon. So this is opening day. He's just beginning his ministry. He's got a whole Old Testament worth of text to choose. And what's the text that he selects for his first sermon? Isaiah 61. He pulls that off and he unfurls it to this place, Isaiah 61. And here's here's the tone that he strikes from the word go. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Just look at those words and let them lift off the page. Jesus says, this is my message, right? Good news, liberty, sight, more liberty, favor, and he basically rolls up the scroll and says, I'm here all day. This is, this is what I've got for the world. This is what I brought. Hope you like it. I've got plenty of it. This is why I'm here. You think about that as the, the sort of ribbon-cutting ceremony of the inbreaking kingdom of God, and Jesus says, I'm opening up all this good stuff to the world. That's why he's here. Quoting our passage on opening day, what's Jesus saying? It's in your notes. Good news enters hard places. Good news enters hard places. And that's what you see in Isaiah chapter 61. He says, I've got good news, but it's good news on wheels. And where is it going? To the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the captives, right? It's going to all the hard places. It's going to the people who can't pull their act together, right? The poor here in this text It includes, but it's not just limited to those who lack financial means. I love what New Testament scholar John Oswalt says about this verse. He said, who are the poor? Those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. Those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Those who think that they will never again experience the favor of the Lord or see his just vengeance meted out against those who have misused them. That's rich. Those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes, sackcloth, and the fainting heaviness of despair. These are they to whom the servant Messiah shouts, good news. (laughs) And you follow Jesus after his opening sermon, and where does he go? To those people. Right? He's, going to, he's going to tax collectors, he's going to outcasts, he's going to sinners and fishermen and zealots and Roman centurions and women you're not supposed to follow on Instagram, right? And he's going and walking up to them and he's engaging them in conversation and he's saying, hey, can we have dinner at your house tonight? Can we sit around the table and have fellowship? They called him the friend of sinners. They probably meant that as an insult. Jesus maybe took it as a compliment, because sinners got the impression that Jesus liked being with them. And they were right. He enjoyed being around them, right? He, you think about our life as a church. If, if we'll just start by just being real 
All kinds of good things can happen in our fellowship as a local church. All kinds of good things can happen. Why? Because this, pretending helps no one. Can we bring that on board in our lives and in our relationships? Pretending helps no one. Here's a note. I'm going to read you a note written by a pastor. It was published posthumously after he took his life. It was published in a local newspaper. Here are his words. God forgive me for not being any stronger than I am. But when a minister becomes clinically depressed, there are very few places where he can turn to for help. It feels as if I'm sinking farther and farther into a downward spiral of depression. I feel like a drowning man trying frantically to lift up my head to take just one more breath, but one way or the other, I know I'm going down. Last words. He didn't tell anybody. Why didn't he tell anybody in his community of faith? Because he thought it would ruin his ministry. How sad is that, right? In other words, his functional theology was pastors aren't allowed to be weak. That, that's the statement that this makes. Pastors aren't allowed to be weak. And you know what? We can give the impression as a church, in our small groups, in our community, Christians aren't allowed to be weak. You're not allowed to be weak. You're allowed to be strong. You're allowed to be resolved. You're allowed to be holy. We do have, maybe, maybe some churches, we might offer kind of a probationary weakness program. You know, you got 30 days. You've got, you're welcome. You've got 30 days to sort this thing out. I know it's, been, I know it's taken you 30 years to get to this point, but you've got 30 days to figure it out and, and work your way out of this, this jam, right? Look, when gospel kindness gets into the bloodstream of the church, we don't shame the weak. Why? Because we're too busy confessing our own weakness. We're interrupting that moment with my own issues, my own need for a savior, my own need for his patient work of transformation in our hearts. Embodying the welcome of Jesus means extending our arms over tired, weary, greater Birmingham. And we say loud enough so they can hear it in the back, he welcomes you. Come all who are weary and heavy laden and you come to Jesus and you get rest. We just need to be reminded of this this truth that sits right at the center of our life together as a church. It's right here in the gospel. Can I just say to everybody in this room, whatever your journey is, wherever you find yourself this morning, this rest is for anybody who's just tired of keeping up appearances. This rest is for anybody who's broken enough to just fall into his arms. Not walking forward, striding forward, running forward, just tipping yourself forward and falling into his arms. That's, that'll do the trick, right? That's where he is. He's in that place of brokenness. He loves ministering to his people there. So grace enters in. Second, grace writes a new story. It's the second movement of God's kindness in the church. It writes a new story. I'll tell you something about my sister, Lori. This would also describe other members of my family, but um, my sister lives hundreds of miles away, so I can tell you that it describes her. So this might describe some of you. So here's something about my sister. When she's watching something, especially if she's already seen it or she knows it's going to be great, 
or enjoyable. She spends more time watching you watch it than watching the thing itself. So she'll even, we were together as a family for a big family reunion a couple of years ago. We all got together and we were watching this musical and Lori loved this musical. The rest of us hadn't seen it. She finds the chair that gives her an ability to look at all of us through the entire movie. And so I'm watching the movie and I look over my, series, my sister's just looking at me <laughs> the whole time, just brimming smile all across her face, just taking it all in. And, and I often think about my sister when I read the Gospels because um, the Gospel writers position you, if you will, the Gospel writers put a chair in the room where you can watch Jesus process what's in front of him. You watch Jesus' eyes and you get to see how he responds to the brokenness that's before him. And one quick place to see that is just look up the word saw, see, Look, there are over 40 references in the Gospels to things that Jesus is looking at. You know what you're seeing? You've got a chair pulled up and you're looking at the eyes of God and you're watching how he responds to the brokenness of the world. Matthew 9, 26. When he saw the crowds, so your eyes are on his eyes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 10 He said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. And so when you see, so often in the Gospels, when you see Jesus looking at something, he's responding to it. He's welling up with emotion. He cares about what he sees. And he acts in response to what he sees. So often it says that he looked on them and he felt compassion, that That term, this is in your notes, compassion is the emotion most frequently attributed to Jesus. Did you know that? Compassion is a safer emotional response from the church than righteous indignation. We're in good company when compassion is our fastball, when that's our immediate first response to need, to brokenness, to sin, to suffering. You just think about one expression of that. We could explore so many, but just think about what Jesus did in reference to lepers. So leper colony, and, and they, they know how this thing goes. They know, they know the drill. Somebody starts walking within a stone's throw away, and what are we supposed to do? We're lepers. We have to notify you that you're, you're coming too close. Unclean, they shout out, unclean. And usually the moment they say that, everybody adjusts course and moves away from them until Jesus of Nazareth. Unclean, he keeps walking. He's getting closer and closer. Unclean. What is he he doing? Unclean. You need to turn around. You're way too close. Turn around. This is a leper colony. People don't walk here. Our family members don't walk here. No one. We are the untouchables. No one's laid a hand on us for years and years and years. And Jesus walks all the way up to them. And he does something they've not felt maybe in decades. He puts his hand on them. Can you imagine? Even if he wasn't going to heal them, can you imagine the relief of a leper being touched by a human being on purpose. 
And Jesus puts his hands right where death had staked its claim in people's lives. And he says, the newness starts now. He works his kingdom out in places of hardship and pain and difficulty. He wasn't afraid to make contact with the real world, including lepers, because when he touched them, they caught his wholeness. He didn't catch their leprosy. That's how he engaged with the world. He touches sinners. He reaches out to them. He's not afraid of the optics of the situation. They called him a friend of sinners. He liked being there. That's where he wanted to work. It's where he wanted to make friendships, right in that space, right? The, the background track, Brookhills, the background track of our whole church life should be Isaiah 61. We're sent with good news. What does that mean? It means we're sent to heal we're sent to proclaim liberty, we're sent to free prisoners, we're sent to comfort, we're sent to provide, we're sent to bestow crowns of beauty. Like, that's what we do. We're here all day. That's what we do. It's why we're here. This, this text defines relevance for the church. This is what relevant churches are all about. Maybe you came in feeling like God is a million miles away from you. My favorite thing to say all morning is going to be this. He's not He's here. He is right here. He is leaning forward. His yes is on the table. And his yes is on Isaiah 61 yes. It's yes, I'll heal. Yes, I'll comfort. Yes, I'll provide. Yes, you get righteousness. Yes, you get forgiveness. It's what he's offering in the gospel. It's why he went to the cross to provide these things that we could never arrive at on our own or any other way. It's yes, I'll walk with you in your deepest grief. Here's the point. Jesus finds us broken, but he doesn't leave us broken. He doesn't leave us broken. So the three stages of ministry that unfold here, grace enters in, grace writes a new story, and grace moves us toward others. And that's where it all comes full circle. He uses us. God must have a sense of humor. <laughs> he uses us. You can just fill in this next point here. Changed by Jesus, we join his renewal effort in the world. We join his renewal effort in the world. You, you may have noticed in verse four, the pronoun has changed. Up until now in this text, it's been me has been the pronoun of choice. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me. He has sent me to heal. And that me is the Messiah. Jesus arrives and he says, I'm the me who was prophesied who would come and do this. But in verse four, the me is replaced with they. Look at that. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations, which just begs the question, who are they? Well, you have to work backwards, right? This is grammar. You have to work backwards to try to find what's the antecedent, what's the referent that this is, what's the identity of this group that's called they. You back up to verse three, there they are again. They will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord, which is good, but it still doesn't help us understand who are these people, what are they like, what's the profile of the they. And you take one more step back from verse three and you realize the people that God is using in verse four to rebuild broken people 
are broken people. They were the ones in verse three, mourning in Zion. They were the ones weeping amid the ashes of their devastated lives. They are the company of the broken in verse one. They're the captives. They're the prisoners. They're the addicts. They're the mourning. They're the desperate, right? Jesus brings us full circle. He finds us broken. He writes a new story. Then he sends us to the broken. That's the church. That's the church. If we're not into that, we need to get out of the game, right? That's That's the work we're called to do. That's what Jesus is doing in the world. The kindness of Jesus changed your story. If you're a Christian, that's what happened. His kindness changed everything about you. He entered into your brokenness, wrote redemption on the walls, and started something new, right? He put his hand right where death had staked its claim, and he said, newness starts happening today. Old things have passed away. All things start becoming new. We we see a renewal effort in verse four and five. Here's the next point. The church is marked by vibrancy and diversity. Vibrancy and diversity, you see there in, in verse five, strangers will stand and feed your flocks and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. So just pick up on all the metaphorical language that's being used there. So it's, it's a picture of lambs feeding in green pastures. It's a picture of a fruitful field. There are ply, plowmen, there are vine dressers. So you need vine dressers because something's growing in this field. A vine is growing. There's life. There's vibrancy here. But it's interesting that it says strangers and foreigners are doing some of the good work in the body of Christ. What's fascinating is our passage, it finishes with this word about outsiders. And they're outsiders who aren't just in the faith family, but they're leading the faith family. They're feeding, they're dressing vines, they're in ministry mode, standing, feeding, plowmen, laborers, vine dressers. So this passage speaks of what Jesus brings to the world and then he calls those whom he has redeemed out to do the same thing and then he says strangers are gonna be folded in and they're gonna join you in this work. That is, those who are outside are gonna be inside doing this work as well. What's what's interesting is that it ends with strangers and what's also interesting is when you go over into Luke chapter four when Jesus preaches this message and cites this passage, you see this whole thing play out because he brings a message of grace and kindness and everybody loves it until he talks about strangers, until he talks about foreigners receiving the grace that he's promised. So basically he announces in Luke 4, I'm here to demonstrate the welcome of God, puts the scroll down, everybody says, wow, bro, thanks for coming, great sermon. And then one of them says, huh, you'd never expect that out of a carpenter's boy. And the superiority begins right there. And Jesus then starts to meddle. And here's, here's how it plays out in Luke 4, verse 22. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words. We love grace. We love the message of grace. Thank you. That came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel, there's the inside, insiders, in Israel in Elijah's days, 
When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon, a Gentile widow. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Right? Not Syrians. Grace is for us. It's not for them. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. These are church folk, and they're mad as hornets. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. Three minutes ago, they were slapping high fives and saying, greatest message we've ever heard. We love grace. Now they're trying to throw this guy over the, over the cliff because he said, guess who else gets grace? The people outside. The ones you despise. It, it's possible to sing about grace while hoping some don't receive it. And here, here's a classic demonstration. Put it up here on the screen for you. Just take that in. Take in the irony and the gospel denial that happens in that picture. Jesus saves, and they're still donning their hoods. That's a denial of the gospel. That's not, that's not a rebuilding, restorative community of faith. Look, right here this week in our community, many of us saw the, the videos that were filled with racist insults and remarks and strung, just laced with profanity and words about concentration camps and that people would just die off. They would hurry up and die off, right? This happened right here in our city. And this is fresh for us, right? Because just this past Wednesday, our students were going to gather in the student building and Many of them had already heard the rumors around town, and many of them, some of them had even seen the videos, or at least they had heard about it. And so Mark Sly, our student ministry leader, he, he addressed that, the content of those videos head on, right at the outset, and he said this. Now to those in this room who are aware of the videos or comments that have been directed toward you because of your skin color and ethnicity, I want to be emphatically clear about something. I love you. We love you. And this place and these groups will always embrace and celebrate the diversity that God has blessed us with. And I heard, word on the street was, it became a holy moment in the student building. Because Mark said, nobody has to, but if you're comfortable and if you've ever been on the receiving end of racist insults and remarks, would you trust us and stand? And they stood. And then Mark shared words of affirmation and he said, now, everybody in this room, you get up and you gather around these friends. And I heard there were tears. Kids were crying. And they were praying, and Mark said, you pray out loud. You don't pray in your head. You lift up your voice and let them hear you thanking God for them, expressing your love and gratefulness to God for them. 
And then once that prayer was over, he said, all of you who have just been prayed for, you now pray for the friends who are gathered around you, and let's just be community together. Guess what happened on Wednesday night right here? Isaiah 61 was happening right here, rebuilding ancient ruins, restoring former devastations, renewing ruined cities, the devastations of many generations, not hitting the repeat button on former devastations, saying something new starts here. This is a different kind of community. We outdo one another in showing honor. And we do that because we've met the real Jesus. We, we do that because the gospel writers pulled up a chair and let us see his eyes. And his tears affected us. And let us see his response and his compassionate actions. Look, the church has been doing this for centuries. It's not new. It's what we've been into for centuries. So, Brooke Hills, a few, a few practical takeaways for us. If we want to be this kind of community, number one, be authentic. Be authentic. Look, there, there is too much gospel opportunity in our community for us to play church. It's got to be real. And, and hear this. People in our city who used to play religion can smell fake from a mile out. It's maybe why, why they're not here anymore. They smell inauthenticity. They smell fake superficial relationships. They don't want any part of that. But what happens? What happens if they come in and they smell something different? They see people who genuinely care about each other, who genuinely walk out into the light and tell the worst of it. Second, be patient. Be patient. And so we're talking about we're talking about gospel culture. We're talking about ethos, right? We we don't we can't like hit a switch and suddenly all this just starts firing in our life as a church. We sow faithfully toward these things. We pray toward these things. We celebrate every baby step in the direction of these things. So be patient, be authentic, be patient. Third, don't freak out. You know what what, um, closes so many doors? Christians who are shocked by sin. Christians who just can't believe it when the world acts like the world. When people who are without Christ act like they don't have Christ in their life, changing them. So sin it can't feel icky to us. <laughs> we have to get over that. It's almost like how effective is a surgeon going to be if he can't stand the sight of blood? How effective are we going to be if we can't work in the neighborhood where sin is taking over people's lives? That's exactly where we belong. Depression doesn't surprise us. So glad you've, you've opened up to be vulnerable and share that tender area with us. Friend, let's walk together. We don't have platitudes to throw at you or cliches or trite statements. We just want to be your friend. What if somebody shares? What if somebody shares that I struggle with same-sex attraction? What are you going to do? Don't call the exorcist. Don't be reactionary. Pull up a chair. Make a friend. Listen to the story. This is why we talked a few weeks ago about gospel plus safety plus time. We walk out into the light and the Apostle John says, good things happen out there. In time, 
Good things happen out in the light. What happens out in the light? We fellowship together. And Jesus is working change in us out in the light. And with that, don't hold timers over people's heads. Don't say your probationary period for change is almost up. It's been 28 days. You've had a lot of time to work on this. Right, the clock is ticking. We should be prepared to go a very long way with people who are stumbling forward. A long, long way with people who are still in the fight. And finally, pursue prodigals. Pursue prodigals. You know, I heard stories about Brook Hills in the early days, so many stories. I bumped into somebody just recently in the medical community. He was a member of a medical staff. And I asked him, what do you do here at Children's Hospital? And he told me, and he said, what do you do? And I told him what I do, and he said, Brook Hills. He said, I was there in 1998 when my life fell apart and those people loved me. And he said, I couldn't stay away. I was there every Friday night and my life was an absolute wreck and they just kept saying, come on in. We used to be known for this. Are people who are close to us but far from God, are we looking out for them? Are we, are we searching for them? Are we inviting them into our homes, around our tables? Are we in, inviting them into small group? Come meet some of my friends who have been a part of just helping me and just being awesome in my own life. Are we inviting them here? To Brook Hills, who knows what means of grace God will use? Is he gonna use your kitchen table? Is he gonna use your hospitality? Is he gonna use our singing? Is he gonna use the preaching of the gospel? Is he gonna use the fellowship of Christians? When you, when you think about the future of the church of Brook Hills, is it just us out there in the future? Or are there others here? Is anybody else here? Does anybody else come to faith? Does anybody else stir the waters of baptism? Look, as a church, we need a vision not just to serve the people who are here, but, but to reach the people who aren't here yet. Do we have a passion for outsiders? Look, there's all kinds of brokenness. Even within a 10-mile radius of where we're sitting right now, there is all kinds of brokenness. There's all kind of brokenness right here in this room. What kind of church do we want to be? I love these verbs. Let's rebuild. Let's restore. Let's renew. Let's make those our favorite three verbs. Let's be in the restoration business. Let's lean into the work of gospel renewal. And so I want to end by having us read these words out loud, almost as a statement, as it were, to our community and to our city, that this is what happens in here. We extend the wide-arm welcome of Jesus over this entire community. You come in, and this is what you get. Can we uh, read this together? To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left.